Well, we are almost at the end of a series that we started back in August, a series that we have been walking through every single week over this semester, looking at the book of Revelation. And we've been examining this book and studying the promises and the prophecies that God has put within its pages so that we would not just understand the future, not just so that we would have knowledge about what is to come, but so that also that that knowledge would transform our present understanding. Because the God has given us the book of Revelation as a source of guidance and of hope in our present life. The, the knowledge that we have about the days to come speaks directly to how we live in the day here and now. And hopefully over the weeks we've seen this hope, just this, this theme of hope time and time again, that God has written the end of the story and that the end of the story is good. It is good for himself and it is good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And it's a hope that maybe we don't always carry day to day. It's a hope that I know that I kind of lost at the beginning of this week uh, whenever I discovered that the flu had arrived on the shores of the Smith household. And so my wife and I, we've got three little kids, and every single one of us over the last maybe week and a half have fallen victim to the depravity of influenza. It has, it has struck us. It swept through our home. And it started with our kids, and then eventually it kind of worked its way up the chain to my wife and to myself. And so it was late on Tuesday when I realized, okay, my time has come. The enemy has crouched on my doorstep, and he is about to devour me. And so I called our, like, teledoc thing. We've got a telemedicine thing. So I was able to call this doctor. It randomly pairs me, you know, with someone in the, I don't know, in the U U.S., I guess. And uh, I get connected with this fine southern gentleman doctor. And as I began to explain to him kind of what was going on, I was like, yeah, we've got this scourge of flu. It's like coming through our home and our kids had it and now my wife's got it and I think I'm about to get it. I'm asking him for medication to help stave it off. As I'm explaining it to him, he's like, yeah, oh boy, you know, it's happening. Oh yeah, I know how that is. Dope, dope. And he's like, I'm writing your prescription. Uh, and as he's, you know, it's telling me about he's typing the things up and writing the prescription, he goes, well, you know, at least through all of this, you can look on the bright side. And then it was silent. Like, this silence that you're feeling is exactly what happened on the phone. Because I'm like, what? Do I respond? Is he going to explain? And so he didn't say anything. Just left it. Just pregnant pause. And so I was like, yeah, for sure. And that bright side is that. And he goes, you get to raise children. And that's a blessing. My dad agrees. <laughs> and I said, you know what? You win this round, nice doctor. But as I was wrought, as I was racked with fear and aches and pain all that night, I wasn't able to sleep that entire night because it had just hit me full force. You know, I, I'll admit that even in that, I wasn't necessarily like, oh, the blessing, my cup's overflowing. You know, like I wasn't necessarily giving too much praise and honor to the Lord. Yes, is raising children a blessing? It absolutely is. But what I had to recognize in those moments, right, as I'm just marveling in the bright side and just kind of closing my blinds just a little bit, so bright, uh, I kind of had this realization that, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a blessing. It really, truly is to have children, to raise them up, to be given that, that responsibility by the Lord. It is such a blessing. It's also an investment, right? It's an investment in the future of someone else. And the reality is that every investment that we have in our lives 
has a cost, right? By definition, making an investment, it carries a cost. And we understand that when it comes to financial investment or to time investment. Like when we think about the organizations we're a part of or the jobs that we work or the relationships that we maintain, there's investment that takes place. We are, we are giving something up in the hope of some future gain for ourselves or for others. And the reality is that as people, we don't always make the best investments, right? Like we will make wrong investments. We can think maybe even about our lives and think, gosh, I you know, put all that time into that sport team or whatever and it didn't really work out. Or I was, I was a big fan of this group or that person and, and they just flamed out, it didn't pan out. Or I put all my money into, you know, I don't know, Facebook stock two weeks ago and uh-oh. You know, like there's, there's a lot of ways that we have maybe failed in our investing. And God knows this about us. He knows that there's going to be times that we make the wrong investments. And it's, and it's tragic, really, because the Lord has designed us to want to invest. The God, it's part of us being made in his image that we, we have this desire to pour ourselves out and pour ourselves into the pursuit of something or someone else. It's a good desire, and yet it's one that we fail to always put in the right direction. And this is what the Lord highlights for us in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, is he's going to remind us, his people, of, of the, the dangers and the disappointments that come when we invest in the wrong person or in the wrong place. And what we're going to see in Revelation 17 and 18 is essentially two terrible areas for our investment. We're going to see that there, is, there are idols, that there is opportunity for us to, to invest our lives in, in the religious pursuit of something or someone other than the Lord. And that's an idol. It's, it's something that's, that's desiring worship that, that ultimately should belong to God. We're also going to see the, the dismay and the, and the despair that comes from individuals who are putting their, their, their material wealth and material uh, resources into <coughs> other areas or other pursuits that aren't aligned with the will of God. And in each of these instances, in both of these chapters of 17 and 18, what we have is this reminder for us, not just that, oh man, there's doom, and there's gloom, and there's disappointment out there, but we're going to have a reminder of hope, a reminder for us that there is a better way, that there is a better option, that there is a better object of our faith, there is a better object of our investment and of our worship, that being God himself. So if you read with me in Revelation chapter 17, <coughs> we're going to start in verse 1, and it says this. That then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me. He said, come, and I will show you the condemnation and punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. The one with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and the earth's inhabitants got drunk with the wine of her immorality. So John begins this chapter uh, essentially describing a vision that he's been given. So if you remember, at the end of 16, we've, we've seen the bowls of God's wrath, these final seven judgments poured out on the earth. At the end of this time of tribulation, the seven-year period that God has set aside in order to pour out his wrath and judgment upon the nations in order to draw his people back to repentance. And so at the end of that time, we're gonna, it's going to culminate with the appearance of Christ that we're going to read about in chapter 19 next week. And so before we get to that grand finale, 
What we see here at the 17 is John is being carried away in the spirit to see another vision. And I believe what it is, it's an, it's an opportunity for John to kind of step back and get a full perspective. It appears that he's actually being almost transported in time to the beginning of the tribulation. And he's going to see the emergence of this great harlot, of this beast, and things that we're going to explain in just a moment. And what it is, is I think it's, a, it's, it's an explanation that sets up the final judgment that God's about to pour out. It's going to set up the, the consequences that God is, is bringing to bear against uh, the, the enemies, or his enemies, against the evildoers, the ones who on earth have committed these, as he says, sexual immorality. And now, is there error? Is there evil? Does it include sex, like literal sexual immorality? Yes, most likely it does. Also, at the same time, God's use of describing their, their practices in sexual, as sexual immorality, many times in Scripture, what that carries is also a connotation of idolatry. God's trying to communicate the gravity of what it means to, to, to chase after something or someone above himself to create an idol in our lives. And many times when he talks about it, he uses this metaphor, he talks about it as sexual immorality. In other words, it's a spiritual adultery because we have forsaken our true love, God himself, and we've, supplant, we've, we've removed him from his place and we've, we've chased after something or someone else in his place. And so he says, this is, or so the angel is telling John, he says, I'm, I'm going to show you why this is all coming into place. I'm going to show you why the judgment is so great, why the punishment is so severe. And so he carried me away in the spirit. <coughs> Verse three, to a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. Right, so he sees this, this radical moment, this, this dramatic uh, play, this woman and this beast. And John, and John goes on and describes, like, this is what she looked like, and this is what he looked like. There's all these things going on. It's, it's, a, it's a wild scene. And so in verse 7, the angel tells him, he says, well, why are you astounded, right? So he can tell John's confused by what he's seeing. So he says, I will interpret for you then, still in verse 7, the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. So if we go forward a little bit further, we're going to get to that explanation. The angel said to me, in verse 15, the waters that you saw, so the woman and the beast are standing on these waters. This is, these waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Right, this is important for us to note here at the front, that all people, all nations, all multitudes, all languages, everyone is susceptible, everyone is, is vulnerable to the temptation of following after idols, of following after this woman who's about to be explained, this beast. None of us are immune from the temptation that it is to replace God with something or someone else. Okay, that's what we need to take. That's what we need to take note of. He goes on, he says that these 10 horns <coughs> that were on the beast, these 10 horns that you saw on the beast, these will hate the prostitute and make her desolate and naked. They will consume her flesh and burn her up with fire. So before this, the, the angel or the scene that John saw play out was that this beast was carrying this woman, this woman who is known as, ba who's the personification of Babylon. And what he's saying is that this Babylon is being carried along 
by this beast and by uh, these horns, by these kingdoms and, and these kings. And that eventually, though, that all of that is going to turn into infighting, that, that the beast and the kingdoms and the kings are going to turn on the woman. They're going to consume the flesh of Babylon. And this is because God has put it into their minds to carry out his purpose by making a decision to give the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. John is saying that, look, you're going to see this, and this is describing the, kind of the turning point of the tribulation. He says, you're going to see that, that all the world is caught up in Babylon, which we'll explain in a moment. They're caught up in this, this Babylonian thought, but then they're going to turn against Babylon. They're going to reject Babylon, and instead they're going to focus fully on the beast, this agent of Satan that we've talked about in the previous weeks. And they're going to turn, they're going to worship him, and they're going to trust in him. And they put him on this ultimate pedestal of power and authority. He says, but, but realize that in that chaos and in that confusion, that it's actually still a part of the work of the Lord. See, this is a comfort to us. That even in that chaos, even in that tumultuous time, that it's God's plan at play. That, that God is, is orchestrating these events for his own glory because he's setting up this ultimate defeat that's coming in chapter 19. But as I said, he says, we, we, we have this, this figure of Babylon. This woman, she represents Babylon. And Babylon, uh, and there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of scholarly uh, debate and conversation around, okay, what exactly does this mean? And Babylon was an actual city, right? We know about the founding of it. It's in Genesis chapter 10. And we're told that Babylon was this, this massive, like, powerhouse city. It eventually gave rise to nations that, that had incredible power. The Babylonians at one point held Israel in captivity. And we're told that, that Babylon is an actual place, a magnificent place. It could be a place that gets rebuilt. <laughs> that is one theory. It could be that we're talking about a literal, the literal city of Babylon uh, that is going to rise to prominence again and then be vanquished and destroyed. Uh, it is also possible at the same time that this figure of Babylon also represents more than just a place, but it represents a perspective and a practice. It's the same way that when we talk about, when if, if I brought up the word Hollywood, you would think, okay, well, that's, that's a place, like it's an actual place. Hollywood is a place, but it's also, there's, there's connotation of that. There's also like a perspective associated with that or, or a practice associated with that. Or maybe when I say Hollywood, you're like me and you think, well, yeah, Paul Hollywood, he loves bread and British baking. Like that's kind of a whole, that's a whole deal. And, and we're both, we're all right, right? Babylon, in the same way, it, it holds not just a physical location, but it holds a, a, a perspective shift or it holds a certain mindset, a certain culture. And we're told in scripture repeatedly, God uses Babylon as an example of how humanity has turned away from himself how Babylon is always an example of evil and rejection of God's authority. And so what we're told here is that Babylon will rise and Babylon will fall. And so that's why the command that God gives his people in Revelation 18 is so urgent. Look ahead a little bit with me in chapter 18, starting in verse 4. <coughs> After talking about the rise of, or sorry, the fall of Babylon, the destruction of its religious practices and its power and influence over the world. In verse four of chapter 18, we're told that John hears a leather voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon, my people, so you will not take part in her sins, so you will not receive her plagues, because her sins have piled up all the way to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. 
there's this illusion that's taking place right here and talking about how the sins of Babylon have piled all the way to heaven. It's, it's a purposefully pulling our mind back to the Tower of Babel of how the, the nations, how all the people in the earth at the time of Babel, they, they built this tower saying that we are, can be as great as God. That's why they built this giant tower that to then their mind stretched all the way to heaven. And of course, at that point in time, you know, thousands of years before now, uh, the Lord crept down, literally in the, in the scripture, it's hilarious language because they think they've like gotten so grand and so big and so tall. And literally the, the Hebrew term is that God had to kind of stoop way down and just kind of knock them all flat. And he confused their languages and, and forced them to, to separate. And he, he dismantled this grand project that they'd spent years upon. He dismantles it in a day. And in the same way, God is saying, don't buy in to the lies of Babylon. Come out. He's giving this command because he knows we're tempted to lean in. He knows we're tempted to just sort of drift into this wrong perspective, this wrong practice, this idolatry of putting something or someone in the place that only God should be in. Because that's the danger of idols, that they demand the worship that God deserves. And every single one of us is susceptible to this. One, one pastor put it really great. I remember learning this back in college. He gave this framework of how to identify idols in our lives. And he says, you want to think about maybe where you put four different resources. He says, you think about where do you spend your imagination? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your purpose? And where do you spend your emotion? Where do you spend your imagination, your thoughts, your thinking, your daydreams, your hopes? Where do you spend your money, your finances, your resources that you have? Where are you investing that? Where are you putting that towards? Where do you spend your purpose, meaning your effort, your energy? What are you building? What are you tearing down? Where do you spend your emotion? What catches you up? What, what dictates whether you have a great day or a terrible day? What sports team or person has that level of influence over you? And when we find those things, when we pull those issues up by their roots, what we find are idols clinging to the roots. We find where our heart really lies. And, and we discover, wow, maybe some of my desires have actually drifted from the Lord. Maybe some of my worship has gone to the wrong place. Another way an author put it is he says that what you do in your isolation, that is your religion. Your religion is how you spend those times that are all to you, those times that belong to you fully. And I'll be honest, as I was thinking back, as I was studying this this week, and as I was examining my own life, I was like, gosh, you know, I need to take stock of this. I need to recognize, what, what do I do with the time? If I know I have like these hours or I have this time, uh, time is a really precious commodity to me now as a, as a father of young children with a lot of different responsibilities. And so I, I have to you know, that time is, is much smaller. It's easier for me to identify where those hours are spent because there's not as many hours as I used to have maybe in, in college or, or before. And so I'm able to look at those times, I'm able to look at those hours and ask myself, okay, what, what am I really spending that time towards? You know, this past week it was like taking a lot of DayQuil. So I'm like, is that bad? Well, not necessarily, right? We can examine the time that we have to ourselves and it's not that we, it all needs to be like in 
a you know, methodical Bible study. That's not what the Lord is asking of us. God wants us to enjoy the blessings of this world. He's given us relationships. He's given us responsibilities. He wants us to work. Like These are good pursuits, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I doing these things? Am I, am I putting my hope and my dreams, my expectations in these things above the Lord himself? Am I worshiping something or someone other than God? Because that is where we step outside of his will and into sin. It's the same cautionary tale that John gave to the early church before he wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote different epistles. He wrote these letters to the early church. And in his first letter, he says at the very end, this is his culminating argument, statement. He says that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us insight to know him who is true. So Jesus has now left us without excuse. We know who God is. We know what is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So not only do we know what is true, but we actually belong. We're children of truth. We belong to the Lord. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, he has adopted us into the family of God. (laughs) That's an incredible blessing. He says, and this one is the true God. This is where eternal life is found. So little Children, listen, guard yourself from idols. That's it. That's the end of the letter. Because John knows. John knew what God knows that is still true. That we are always tempted to direct our worship to the wrong place. So how do we fight against that? How do we guard against setting up these idols in our lives, these competing gods against the one true eternal, life-giving God that we know. Well, I think, practically speaking, we commit ourselves to the grace of God. What I mean by this is we reject some of the really common idols or the common false religious practices that pop up, the, the practices that appeal to our pride or the practices that appeal to our pleasure. Many times we can buy into these lies and think, well, if I just do enough things, if I check enough boxes, then God's going to approve of me, right? There are world religions that that's, that's the core tenet of what they are, is you got to do these things, you pray these times, you check these boxes, you go to these places, and you do all that stuff, and then you've gone far enough that God will meet with you, and you've done enough, right? It's, it's, it's an appeal to pride. It also infiltrates Christianity, where we adopt this legalistic mindset of like, I just have to like go on a trip or I have to share these things or I've got to do whatever and then God will really truly accept me. And if I leave those boxes unchecked, then I need to be fearful that maybe I don't really belong to the Lord. Maybe I never really believed in him because I haven't done the right things. And we reject that because we recognize that we're saved by the grace of God. It's not our work. No one has room to boast. That's why Paul was able to say, look, I've done all these amazing things, all these religious things, but I don't boast in any of it. I recognize that it's like, it's like filthy rags to the Lord compared to his work, compared to what he has done, to what he has accomplished. So he says, I'm not gonna boast in myself, I'm gonna boast in Christ alone. We should do the same. We reject pride, we reject legalism, and we instead recognize and appreciate the grace of God. Also, we have these religious practices or these religious, religious philosophies that appeal to our pleasure. There's world religions that speak to this. They're like, you do enough, right? They have a, there's a karma system where like if your good can outweigh your bad, then you get certain rewards. 
maybe you come back in the next life in a better position or with a better background or in a, you know, a more favorable thing, or you, you receive these material blessings. If you do these certain things, if you say these certain prayers, then, then you're blessed with these material possessions or the, the, the fulfillment of these maybe uh, carnal desires that you have. And that's not how our God operates. It's not. It's contrary to the grace of God. And yet it still infects Christianity, where we think, well, you know, I've, I've really got to pray a lot this week because I really want, like, a certain grade next week. And so, you know, I'm going to, like, make sure I, like, maintain these boundaries with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Or, you know, I'm going to make sure that I, like, go to Bible study that week. Or I'm going to go to Breakaway because Lord knows, like, my mom's going to ask me about my test grade on Thanksgiving. And I better be ready. And so I better do these things for the Lord so that I receive what I want from him. And that's not... That's not how our God works. The grace of God tells us that his presence, relationship with him, that's the greatest blessing we'll ever receive. That we don't do things in in the hopes of earthly material reward, but we live lives according to his will because it's right. Because he deserves our lives. He deserves all praise that we can offer. He deserves our obedience. Because He is enough. That's why Jesus told his followers, he says, I don't want you to fixate on material things. You're not here to worry about gold and and, and riches and treasures because that's the stuff that rusts and and decays and it can be stolen. He says, instead, fix your mind on the things above. Put your hope in heaven. That's where your treasure lies. That's where your heart's gonna follow. And on earth, you can expect to be persecuted and rejected. Jesus said, the same way that I've been rejected and and hurt and scorned, that's what you can expect. I'm not promising you wealth. I'm promising you eternal life and relationship with the God who made you, which is so much better. So much better. And so do we still have material blessing? For sure. Everyone here, right now, we have been blessed in material ways absolutely by the Lord. And God wants us to enjoy his creation. He speaks frequently in scripture about having good meals or great relationships. God wants us to enjoy what he has created. But where we err is when we decide that the pursuit of that creation is somehow greater or more important than our pursuit of the creator. That's why God, and he spoke to the nation of Israel through the prophet Hosea, he told them, and I delight in faithfulness not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply in whole burnt offerings. God's saying, I I still want, God's not saying stop making offerings, stop making sacrifices. He's not saying that. Those were still good ways for Israel to to demonstrate their faith in the Lord. He says, but what I care about more than just that physical act is for your heart. I want you to belong to me. I want you to, to trust in me. I want you to know me. That's what I desire for you, that you're doing these things not because you're hoping to gain standing in my eyes or you're hoping to gain material possessions that you desire. It says you're doing these things because you genuinely love me. That's what I desire, a relationship with you, not simply your religious obedience. And yet we are tempted to fall into that trap of idolatry, but also of investing ourselves in these short-term games. That's what we see in chapter 18 in particular. If you look with me in verse 18, or sorry, in verse nine, 
We're told that after Babylon falls, that the kings of the earth who committed immoral acts with her and lived in sensual luxury with her will weep and wail for her when they see the smoke from the fire that burns her up. So these men of power, these, these people that are in positions of power, they're mourning the loss of Babylon. Why? Well, because they're standing a long way off and they, because they were afraid of her torment. And they say, woe, woe, O great city Babylon, the powerful city, for in a single hour your doom has come. So we're told that the kings, they're mourning the loss of Babylon. Why? Because they're compassionate? No. They're standing very far off because they don't want to like, deal with any of that junk. They're just like, oh, bummer, right? Because that's where our power was. Like we had all this authority and influence there and now it's done. And I don't want to get messy with that, right? They're not in the midst of the city trying to pick up the bricks. They're like standing way off. They're like, oh, that's a, that's a real bummer. And yet their mourning is, I think, really interesting compared to the merchants in verse 11. Because these merchants of the earth, they're also weeping and mourning for her because no one buys their cargo any longer. I love it. I love the honesty of this. The kings are mourning their loss of power. The merchants are like, gosh, our customers are dead. God, got to get new customers for my boat keels. Uh, I don't know. Like, they, you know, whatever they sold, my incense sticks. Like, they're, they're sad because they got to sell new sandals to somebody else. And they're like, ah, oh, no one's buying my cargo. They're mourning their, the loss of their own personal gain. Same thing for these captains further down. In verse 19, where these ship captains are throwing dust on their heads and shouting with weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, O great city, in which all those who had ships on the sea got rich from her wealth, because in a single hour she's been destroyed. They're mourning the loss of their financial gain, their, their storehouses that have been destroyed, their, their wealth that have been accumulated and now is gone. They're mourning the loss of what they consider to be the ultimate end of their life, material possession. And yet in the midst of that weeping and mourning, God gives a command. Likely Jesus himself gives a command to his people. He says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has pronounced judgment against her on your behalf. It's a reminder of what we talked about last week, that God's righteousness is revealed not only in his action, but also in his vindication of his people. Jesus is reminding his people, he says, this, we're not rejoicing over the fact that there's trouble and dismay and turmoil. We're not rejoicing because they're weeping. We're rejoicing because God's justice prevailed, because his judgment is assured, because he's making things right. That's why we rejoice. And we remember in that rejoicing that my short-term investment can often lead myself to long-term disappointment. Investing in the material things of the world can often lead to my eternal disappointment because the things here, they simply don't last. They simply don't last. And it can be so appealing to go after that short-term, short-term game. There's a man uh, who, just a few years ago, was on vacation. He left the United Kingdom, and he went and vacationed in Australia. I guess they do that just for you know, old time's sake. And so uh, he, just a few years ago, was in Australia uh, in a beach in Queensland. And when he was hanging out on the beach, 62-year-old dude, he sees a shark coming up close to the shore. And, you know, if you're 62 years old, <coughs> or even 22, it doesn't, age isn't really a factor. You see a shark coming towards the beach, your reaction generally is like, okay, I won't go out into that water. Like, or I'm going to tell someone else, like, hey, don't go in that water because there's a shark. 
and they don't play nice all the time with people. They're selfish. They're broken by sin. And so that is probably our initial instinct. And yet for this guy, he was like, nah, I'm going to buck the trend. I'm 62 years old. I don't care. And so he waded into the water towards the shark, slapped it on its face, grabbed it by its tail, which I don't think is where you're supposed to grab it. I mean, you're probably not supposed to grab a shark anywhere, but definitely not by the tail. And yet he grabbed it and he swung it further back out in the water to try to set it on its merry shark way to go, you know, bother a jellyfish or whatever instead of people. So he does this successfully, doesn't get injured. People around him are amazed. They're in awe. They're like, oh my, wow, look at the shark conqueror, right? They want to celebrate this. And so news reporters came out, and there's someone who filmed it on their phone, and they uploaded it to the internet, and the video goes like viral, and he's doing interviews with reporters and doing all these talks. He's like, yeah, well, you know, shark came up, and I was like, hey, get out of here. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm not British, but I assume that's just eh, crumpets. You know, like that's what he would have to do. So he casts the shark out, and then his vacation is over. He goes back home, a hero, right? He goes home, a hero. He's the man who proved mankind's dominance over sharks. It's set in stone for another, you know, till the next shark attack. And so he's like, he's riding high, feels great. Gets home, first thing that happens is he goes to work and he gets fired. Like, what? Why would they fire a national, international hero, let's say? Why would they do that? Well, apparently, he was vacationing, um, but actually he was on sick leave. And so his company caught wind, they saw the video that had been gone, like just shared millions of times around the world. They see this video of him slapping and tossing a shark, and they're like, huh, that doesn't line up with that, you know, <laughs> I'm sick, you know, the kind of thing. And so in his official dismissal letter that they wrote to him, they said, hey, um, you know, these are the grounds for your dismissal, including the fact, and this is, I almost quote, it's a little hard, my flu brain's a little foggy, but... <laughs> They basically say, you were too sick to come into work, and yet not sick enough, or not too sick to toss a shark into the sea. Which I was like, fair, right? If I was him, I would then counter-argue, I was sick of sharks being in the wrong place, am I right? You know, like, that's, that's the right response. But he just took it. He got fired. He lost his job. That was it. That was the end of the story. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's tragic in a way because he, you know, if, even if he decided he wanted to go hit that shark and slap the shark and toss the shark, that's fine. But then he gave, he gave interviews. He did like these little testimonials. Like he was talking with people, getting his face on camera, giving people his name. And so all that short-term, short-term gain, like all that like little like moment in the spotlight that he experienced, what it did is actually set him up for long-term failure and dismay. He doesn't have a job now. I mean, that one shark fears him, but there's not a lot else going for him. This is what the Lord wants to protect us from. This is why James, as he wrote to the church, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into this or that town, spend a year there and do business and make a profit. He says, you don't know about tomorrow. What is your life like? You're a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast, you boast about your arrogant plans, and all such boasting is evil. James not saying don't make plans, right? He's not denouncing plans or preparation or being wise. God wants us to be wise, to make plans, to think ahead. 
But what James is denouncing is doing all that, getting so caught up in your plans that you just completely forsake taking those things to the Lord. So my question for us is, do we actually, with, with the resources that we have, with our imagination and with our emotion and with our purpose and with our money, do we actually take that to the Lord and just ask him, God, what is your desire for these things that I've been given? What is your desire for these resources that I have entrusted into my care? Do we hold it open-handedly? Are we willing to release maybe some of our dreams and goals in light of God's greater and better plans for our life? And I think this is a lot easier to do when we commit ourselves to the worship of God. What I mean by that is investment in worship is very different. When I invest in something, I'm investing based upon the cost and the return. When you're making a wise investment, you basically want to have like the lowest cost with the biggest return, the greatest return, the most guaranteed return on that investment for your personal gain. But worship is completely different. Whereas I invest dependent on cost and based on return, I worship regardless of cost and with no goal or hope of return. I I worship regardless of cost because it is right. Because I know that the Lord deserves all that I have and all that I am. That's why I worship. It's very different from an investment. This is why Paul, when he speaks to the church in Rome, he says that I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. He says this is your act of worship, that you would give all that you have and all that you are to the Lord, that you would pursue him above all else, that you would flee false idols, you would flee failed investments, and that you instead chase after the Lord. Right? That's our calling. That's our purpose is that our lives would be lived as worship to our God, regardless of cost, because it is right, because he's deserving of it, because he is God and we are not. This is what the Lord is calling us to. Not that we, not that we would just flee the wrong things, right? It's not that God has designed us with this desire. Like the reason we want to have projects or, or, or pleasure, the reason we want to have investments or idols, it, it comes from a good place, right? God has designed us to want to pour ourselves into the pursuit of something or someone else. But what God is doing is he's not standing back and scolding us every time that we pick the wrong thing. Like, no, don't do that or don't go after that or stop chasing him. Like that's not what God's doing. He's, he's next to us, crouched down with his arms open saying, come to me, come to me. I want to be the one that you're running towards. I want to be the one that you're worshiping. I want to be the one that you are just giving all that you have and all that you are in pursuit of. God's saying, because I deserve it, because I'm the one who made you, I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who has a plan and a purpose for your life. So he says, come to me. We're not marked by what we flee from. We're marked by who we pursue. And God is saying, I want you to pursue me. I want all of your life to be directed in my direction. So this is, what, this is what you're designed for. This is where true life is found. This is what is living and holy and pleasing to me. This is where your reasonable service, that you would simply submit yourself to my will, that you would confess that it's not your will, but it's my will be done. That's what God is asking of his people. That's what we have the opportunity to give to him. This is the life that we're called to as believers in Jesus Christ. And this is how we live according to the hope of what God has told us in the book of Revelation. Because we know the end. We know how the story wraps up. We know that God is the one who prevails. So of course, 
Of course, our day-to-day lives here and now should be spent in pursuit of who he is and what he has done. Of course, our lives should be offered up as a living sacrifice to how he calls us to live. And we're not doing so in a legalistic way where we're seeking to gain some sort of return based on our investment in his plan. We offer up all that we have, not as an investment, but as worship, regardless of cost, because it is right, because it's right. So as we close this morning, we're going to sing one more song about the power of the Lord, about the work of his spirit. We're going to sing about the glory of our God, of how he is greater and mightier, how his word prevails. My hope is that as we sing this song, as we reflect on his truth, that it would be motivation and inspiration for us to reject the idols that always seek to take his place, that we would confess to the Lord every aspect of our heart, that we would be open to his correction, trusting that where he redirects us, he is right. We can trust him in that. And though it might be painful to release an expectation, it might be painful to give up a goal, we can know The comfort that God provides is greater than the pain we might feel now. We can take hope in that the eternity he's promised will overwhelm the darkness and the dismay and the disappointment in this short little life that we've been given. So let's ask him through prayer to move us in that direction. God, we thank you that you've shown us your will and your character through your word. God, we thank you that you have given us, Lord, a a direction to run. God, that we're not aimless, we're not trying to figure out our own thing. But instead, God, you have set the point on the horizon for us. God, you have placed the North Star in the sky. That you've told us that all of your law, that all of your commandments, it all rests upon the simple command to love you with all that we have all that we are. So God, we pray that that's, you would transform us into being. People who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. So if you would take a moment now and ask the Lord to reveal to you what's taking his place. Where in your life have you allowed an idol to creep up? And it happens to all of us. So ask the Lord, say, God, please, convict me. God, show me. Where is it that I'm pursuing something or someone other than you? (coughs) And then ask the Lord, say, God, now that I know, God, through the strength of your spirit, God, correct my path. God, show me what what accountability can I set up to, to avoid making the same mistake. God, what conversation do I need to have? What structure do I need to establish in my life that keeps me focused on you? That keeps you as the object of my faith, of my hope, of my worship. Ask the Lord for that conviction, for that direction. Ask him for that right now.